0: This is the One Soldier Canada History Podcast, Episode 8, with me, Russell Hillier, and my guest tonight, veteran and author, Scott Casey. When people hear the word peacekeeper or peacekeeping mission, I think a lot of us have this image in our minds of the United Nations flag flapping in the wind, of The good guys wearing blue helmets overseeing enemy soldiers turning in their weapons and their guns. We envision countries being lifted from the nightmare of war, of civilians walking city streets in peace. We think of that word peace because, well, it's called peacekeeping after all. And for many so-called peacekeeping missions, that description I just gave you is pretty accurate. But not always. My guest tonight is someone who has worn the blue helmet as part of the Canadian mission to Bosnia and Croatia in the early 1990s, when the former Yugoslavia was descending into a brutal civil war. He's the author of the book titled Ghost Keepers, which chronicles the Canadian mission to this war-torn country. And with that, I'm going to get on the phone with retired Corporal Scott Casey and dive into this mission to Yugoslavia and the book called Ghost Keepers. Scott Casey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, uh, Russell. And I'm uh you know humbled to be here. It's well, uh, really appreciated. It's uh it's an honor for, for me to have you on. And I know we've talked before a couple times, but I'm I'm really looking forward to you today because uh, I've read your book, Ghost Keepers, and I've told you this before it's a fantastic book it's an eye-opening book for sure about your experience in the former Yugoslavia and you know just for the the people at home who haven't read the book yet it's it's about you and your, your company you're amongst the lead Canadians that go into the Yugoslavia as it's falling into this brutal civil war but where I wanted to go first is the the fact that you were able to get this book published at all and that you're able to get it in front of a Canadian audience is really impressive because one of the big beefs I have with the the publishing industry in Canada is that it's not, shall we say the most friendly ground for books of a military theme or a military genre. So how did you sort of break through the obstacles in getting your book in front of an audience?
1: Well, I'll give you a bit of background first in that, uh, you know, you, you brought up the, the publishing industry in itself with the uh, trade paperback, uh, Side of, of the house versus uh, the online market, and uh, the reality is, is I had uh, I had suffered a lot of rejection, as most authors do, especially first-time authors with uh, the the standard publishing route. I went through uh, Douglas McIntyre, and we were actually right up to uh, the the afternoon we were going to meet for lunch and shake hands and sign the contract, and uh, I got a call from the publisher uh the day before uh advising me that they were going to have to cancel the uh the meeting and uh so anyhow it turns out that that the following day they released information that they were filing chapter 11 so bankruptcy protection so i mean it was uh, (laughs) a it was just a stroke of luck that somebody had the the you know the ability to call me and say hey you need to stand down on this because you're going to get locked into something that might not be so good yeah, well, so, bad,
0: bad timing there for sure.
1: Absolutely. And of course, I mean, Douglas McIntyre now has uh, pooled their resources and, and are still a thriving uh, publishing house. So that's really good to see. Uh, because of that, I, I began my search again. Uh, and uh, I managed to uh, find uh, Tactical 16, which is actually an American publisher, uh, a veteran-run business at the time, and is and still is. And so that that worked out well for the mold uh, the other thing is, it was a really big uh, opportunity for me in that it is a, a U.S. publisher, which is also quite difficult for a Canadian writer to to find. Um, you know, it opens it up to uh, to both markets, both Canadian and and uh, American publishing markets. So that's it was very lucky in that regard.
0: Yeah, which is a huge thing because the the Canadian market is uh, well, it's pretty small to be to be blunt. Like the way one agent put it to me was. You got about uh, 35 million people in Canada, a third of those speak French and they're not going to buy your book because of the language uh, barriers. And then you have, um, you know, 25% of that, the rest of the population, which, which might read a book or might pick up a book from a store in a given year. So it's, yeah, if you can get your book in front of an American audience, it's, uh, (laughs) it's like swimming in the ocean compared to, you know, swimming in the backyard pool. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing that I did, uh, I was very happy with, and uh, uh, I was quite surprised actually, is uh, Ghost Keepers was number one in Canadian military history and number one in historical uh, biography in Canada as well. So, uh, you know, just finding a publisher was was uh, difficult enough, but then to be uh, awarded two number ones uh, was, it was the icing on the cake, you know, just to, to have it out there and be be that successful yeah well well, that's
0: great and it's also surprising too because you know when we look at your book or you know we we can look at like you know we I could probably count the number of military memoirs uh on one hand that have been published in the last 10 years and you know your book is a good example uh Robert Semra's book my brother's book Jody Midick these books are all pretty successful and and yet like it's it's almost like kryptonite when you go to a publisher with uh, with this kind of genre of books. So despite the success, uh, there's real, in my mind, from what I've seen, real hesitancy, at least in Canada, to uh, to tell these stories.
1: Yeah, I find too, in this regard, the fact that there are a few successful books now is, is the fact that uh, they have relinquished too. You know, putting the genre out there, it's it's uh, definitely has a a specific market base, and I think that's where their fear is, because uh, trade publishing is is so uh, uh, it's in trouble with uh, with online sales and so on. So it's uh, it's very difficult for them to to you know put those eggs in that basket and hope that it's going to do well with such a limited market. So I, I understand where they're coming from. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, uh let's just get let's get into the book. I said at the intro it's it's a fantastic book. One of the reasons why I enjoyed it so much is it's uh well to say that it's an eye-opening book is an understatement. And I'm, you know, I consider myself to be fairly well versed in Canadian history and military history. I ha- I even had an uncle that was in Bosnia. But but I had no idea that the mission to Bosnia and Croatia was was as as you put it in the book. I mean, I think unlike a lot of canadians i figured oh it's a peacekeeping mission so that must mean that there was peace in that country but when you start reading the book it's like wow no this is like not a peacekeeping mission this is a wartime this is like a wartime footing almost
1: yeah absolutely um, and the, the interesting part of this of this whole event back in in the early 90s was you know with the, there was the fall of the berlin wall and uh, you know there was there was so much anarchy across the Eastern Bloc, that uh, you know, it, the whole the, that whole section of society was uh, very unstable, and for us to go in there, we knew that it was going to be a peacekeeping mission. That's because that's how we'd been trained. Uh, you know, obviously, falling on on the uh, experiences of Cyprus and so on, that uh, you know, there there could be the event of uh, of uh, you know small arms fire and that sort of thing but we didn't really know how grave it was going to be and so you know we went in with basic fundamentals on on peacekeeping itself but it, also we were we soldiers we were infantrymen and those uh, uh, parts of our training were embedded so deep that they were easy to fall back on once things actually went south uh, in in the former Yugoslavia, as we entered the as we entered the country, so it's uh, it's very interesting in hindsight to look back and and see how we actually became the first uh, generation of peacemakers. You know, there was that there was that definitive change in Yugoslavia in 1992, and then of course, uh, you know, in Somalia it, it it was the same thing, right? We became peacemakers versus peacekeepers.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting too, in the book, you talk about how, um, the difference between peacekeeping, the traditional notion of peacekeeping, which is essentially like a police force. Whereas peacemaking is, uh, you're actively, you're out there, you're fighting, you're taking, you're taking fire almost on a daily basis, uh, more barrages, et cetera. But you, you guys went into that country and like, so you didn't really have much of a, a notion that like, yeah, this would be like a
1: daily occurrence. Right. Yeah, we, we really didn't know what to expect, uh, you know, going in. Uh, of course, we had seniors who had been to Cyprus and, and some of the uh, the younger soldiers had also been in Cyprus. But uh, again, it was a, a totally different climate and we were a very small unit to begin with, uh, you know, being the first 12 Canadians in there. Uh, it was It was daunting, to say the least, because... Uh, you know, there was there was small arms fire and and uh, mortar attacks left, right, and center as we rolled in on the trains and and uh, then of course there was landmines and and everything else was all very very real. So things that weren't necessarily noticed in Cyprus uh, on you know in the uh, the buffer zone and that sort of thing were definitely prevalent in the former Yugoslavia. So let's let's go to
0: that uh that train ride into Yugoslavia because I found this to be a really fascinating part of the book. Of course you leave the uh the base in Germany. Uh you've got the Canadian contingent on the train and I I guess you roll through Austria and so far the journey's normal enough and you get into Slovenia and even though Slovenia was a part of the Yugoslavia there's not a lot of evidence of fighting but as you go further and further into the country well you start seeing the evidence of war sort of building up and I imagine that would have been quite a you know, a surreal moment as as you're sort of like going into the center of the hurricane almost.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The The train ride was uh, for the most part was very uh, similar to uh, train rides that we'd taken in Europe just to go to uh, regular training up in Hohenfels in Germany and Nuremberg and, and Hamburg and so on. So the rail move itself was was pretty uh, standard, boring, uh, you know, guys playing cards and and so on. But as we as we got closer, and the uh, the sites of a war started to become more and more visible in, in that uh, buildings were shot up and and so on you could feel the energy change on the train uh you know people there was an anxiety level that it wasn't uh dangerous but it was it was an anxiety level that was definitely noted by everybody
0: yeah and and i think uh one of the parts that really stood out for me on that train ride is uh there, there's a moment where finally ammunition has been passed around you sense the train is slowing down at a station where you should not be stopping and you chamber around into your rifle and and people around you're like well, what the heck are you doing Casey like this is a peacekeeping mission
1: <laughs> yeah uh just it was a, a knee-jerk reaction uh it, it, I just felt that I had to do something to relieve some of that stress for myself and and knowing that I had to round up the spout was uh was that bit of uh, confidence I guess you know in case something went awry because the the stop again was uh, it was unknown we didn't nobody knew why we were stopping where we were, so yeah and it, it's funny because after I did it, everybody else followed suit and you know
0: that one person to to sort of get the ball rolling.
1: Yeah and you know it wasn't done intentionally with bravado or anything like that it was just I'm chambering around because I need to protect myself. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah exactly you
0: know, and it becomes very clear uh, you know in the days that follow why you do need to have a bullet chambered in the round even though I think that was against your your uh, your operating
1: procedures right? Yeah, yeah absolutely we're not supposed to have rounds up the spout. Uh, in fact uh, the fact that we <laughs> they actually handed us ammunition as while we were on the train, I mean, nobody had ammo, and in most uh, peacekeeping, uh, policing actions, sometimes they just want you to have an empty magazine on the on the rifle, so they don't know whether it's loaded or not. And you know, obviously, as you you have mentioned, as we spent more time there, there was a reason to have rounds up the spout. So,
0: yeah, well, it, and like I said, it becomes clear really quickly because you you get into uh, you're you're with. Uh, Lieutenant Burke, I think, in the book. And so were you and Lieutenant Burke sort of going on like an advanced uh, recce of the area to look for a camp is, is, or like a, a place to uh, to build your camp or because you two were out uh, quite a bit on your own.
1: You yeah, put, well, in the sure. initial uh, force of us, there was 12 of us from November Company 3 RCR and the five vehicles and uh, sorry six uh is the the old uh, the old jeep we used to use and as two man teams a platoon commander and a driver we we basically did that it was an advanced recce to find our camp locations in uh sector south and which we did and most of those days you you were by yourselves it was the two of you and or just one of us but for the most part it was we were in pairs
0: yeah, and you can hear battles. Uh, this one of the things in the book that I you know, you start realizing pretty quickly in the book that this is actually a wartime setting because you guys are hearing battles in the distance. At night you're seeing tracer rounds uh fly through the darkened sky. You come across uh, you know, in, in the book, I mean it's the the atrocities that, that you and your and your friends and your comrades saw are just well, I mean, what do you say? It's uh it's out of this world, but you you guys come across uh uh, bodies of Serb soldiers. Pretty soon after you get into the country, it it, it reminds me a lot of uh, you know we we knew that uh, well in hindsight we know that atrocities happened in in Bosnia and Sarajevo But did you ever like think that you were going to see something like that?
1: Uh, no, uh, <laughs> I mean nobody goes out with the intention of of finding you know bodies and or you know getting into firefights, not if they're sane anyway uh, it, uh, it was just something that happened. It was, a a a learning process as we went along and it, it all, it spoke to the, the gravity of the situation. The fact that there was, you know, I I can't recall how many there were. There was probably six or more and, uh, they were, there was like, they were executed, you know, just, just by the way they were in the ditch. And, and so, I mean, there's, Number one, you're you're dealing with uh, with the fact that they're they're dead. Uh, number two, that they were human beings, and number three, that for whatever reason they were executed, which isn't which is completely different than being killed in the you know in the line of duty. That this was a, a well thought out uh, action, so that in itself was terrifying.
0: Yeah, and, and these bodies were they're just left out in the open. It, you know, I, I think I try to make some connections back to uh my brother when he was fighting against ISIS in Iraq. And, you know, it is much the same stuff, you know, like ISIS was, ISIS would come into a village or a town and routinely, you know, rape the women, uh, carry off the children, kill the men and the boys. Uh they would often bury they they would bury the the evidence sort of in many cases and what I found uh, very, very brutal in your book is that these bodies are, they're not, it's like nobody even cares to, to bury or cover up the evidence. Like, is that no. some psychological warfare going on or, or does it speak to just the chaotic nature of, of the war at that time?
1: Uh, it's possibly both, but uh, definitely it sends a message to, to others in the area that we are here and this is what we're capable of doing. And we're going to do more of it if you're in this, if you're in the zone. That's the way they that, that that is the way essentially that they operated, no matter where we went. And it didn't matter which side. they were both capable of these these uh, horrible acts. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I know a lot of people from the former Yugoslavia today that are very good people. Uh, but during that time frame, I mean, we were exposed to obviously the the negative side.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. Like when when you're there, you're like, well, everybody's a potential enemy. So, how how could you see the good, especially when it it seems that so many of these people were. What, I mean, one of the things that really I remember from the book, even though I read it uh, quite a while ago, was that the way that you saw it, a lot of these people preferred warfare to peace because in warfare you've got a job to do, you've got a mission. Maybe you're getting paid. It, it might even be preferable in some weird. Way than to live a civilian life.
1: Yeah, that was one of the shocking things that we learned was uh, was that some of the soldiers who had uh, been farmers or you know regular uh, shift workers and were now part of the militias uh, that they didn't want to go back to their regular job. All they had to do worry about was dying. And you know, like we said, if you're worried about dying, you would go crazy. So you quit doing that. And so, I mean, you, you had no responsibilities other than holding the line. That's, that was their mentality. and it, that, that in itself is very troubling. When you, have, when you have a force that doesn't care about ending the war, and that's why it lasted for 10 years or over 10 years, uh, you know, speaks volumes to, to the headspace that was going on. So definitely uh, troubling to career soldiers, uh, you know, professional soldiers seeing that kind of mentality.
0: Yeah, and this warfare did go on for, you know, I I guess you you could probably make the case that it didn't even really resolve itself until, uh, you know, after the Kosovo campaign and whenever that was, 1999 or 2000
1: even. Yeah, absolutely. And to be honest, uh, speaking with people that are still in uh, the former Yugoslavia, the war actually hasn't ended in some cases and it may not be fought on the ground but it's it's fought still in uh, business and trade and and uh, so on they they definitely uh, the black market is still thriving there and and uh, so the war essentially hasn't ended they just kind of not shooting at each other anymore yeah
0: and they, and they know who uh you know what from outsiders looking into the former yugoslavia i mean can you really tell like a Croat apart from, uh, from a Serbian? Like not really, but I mean, they can, when you talk to people who are from there, they know who's, uh, who's part of the tribe and who's an outsider. Uh, so those like ethnic divisions are still very much apparent even today. And you know, even though, like you said, the gunfire is not happening, but, uh, the the tensions is probably still there to some degree.
1: Yeah, absolutely. uh,
0: I I was in, uh, years ago I was in, uh, Croatia and Bosnia and Montenegro, just on a you know vacation, and uh, one thing that stood out to me was, uh, well, first of all, have you gone back to to that part of the world since uh, the mission? No, I haven't. Okay, yeah. you you can it's uh, you go there as a tourist and you can see uh, you know you still see tanks at the side of the road that are burnt out, uh, buildings that are pockmarked with uh, with bullet holes, and yeah, you, you get talking to the locals and they they still. They still know that, uh, or you still sense the animosity there to to some degree. One of the themes of the book that that we got to get into is the cover-up of the mission. You guys were out there sacrificing. Uh, the Cain soldiers were in harm's way almost on a daily basis. And and you do these things because you're you're sort of sacrificing for the greater good. You're making a difference in the world. But then when you find out that, the Canadian public doesn't even really know the full story, what's going on. That, that's got to be a, a demoralizing a
1: demoralizing feeling. Yeah, and I, I, I caution uh, the use of the word cover-up. I, I don't think it was an intentional cover-up as per se. It was just a, an ignorance, uh, if you wish, and uh, possibly... Uh, I'm trying to think of what the word would be other than than cover up or ignorance, but it's it's just one of those things where it wasn't talked about. We did they didn't want people to know uh, that we had sustained these these moral injuries, and you know we had a few guys that were that were wounded uh, over a couple of dozen, and there was no word of that getting back to the outside. Uh, I mean, the UN itself you could call on Friday, and the office was closed at five o'clock. And the war is still raging on Saturday and Sunday, you know, so there was a lot of information that wasn't being passed back uh, to Canada as to what was going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the, the media played a big part in that in that uh, they were focused on, on the two sides that were battling it out in Sarajevo for the most part uh, with that siege. But yeah, when we got back uh, it was, it was, it was hard to learn that uh, Canadians didn't have a clue what was going on. And that was part of the reason why I wrote the book, you know, 20 years later, it, uh, it was something that needed to be told. And and, uh, I'm glad that I was able to put it out there and, and uh, you know, kind of give the guys some, some resolve there.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to get into that because of course, when you're, when you're writing a book as an author, uh, it can be quite daunting because you know, you can be sitting at the computer for hours, uh, weeks, months, even years writing this thing. And in the back of of your mind, there's always this thought that like, is this book going to see the light of day? Like, is anybody ever going to read the words on this page? Is the story going to get out? Uh, am I wasting my time basically? But I think when when you're approaching things a little bit differently, like you're approaching it as like, I'm going to write this book because, uh, I'm not, I'm not doing it for any other reason than I'm just going to tell the story. and, And, uh, and do it for the guys, and and do it for yourself as well.
1: Yeah, uh, that's a very, very good point. Is that I didn't write the book for me. Uh, you know, Canadian authors, as a as a general rule, unless you're Farley Mowat, uh, they don't make a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> so I definitely wasn't in it for the riches, and uh, definitely not in it for the fame. Uh, I like to just you know live my life here and and do my help with uh, mental health and stuff like that uh, via military minds. But, uh, you know, for the most part, I just wanted the story to be out there for the guys and, you know, there, I've, I've received, you know, dozens and dozens of letters from the troops saying, you know, thanks for writing this. My family now understands, you know, what I was going through for so many years and the pain that, uh, you know, the pain that we've all held inside because we, we couldn't talk about it when we got back to battalion. And this goes back to the, you know, the way, you you described cover-up, and in, in that uh, uh, we we weren't allowed to talk about it. Yeah. When we rotated back to Canada, we got into the battalion, and if there was more than three of us in a group, we were told to to disband. It was an illegal gathering, and we were told to disperse. You know, you get over there, you go over there. We weren't allowed to, as November Company guys, we weren't allowed to congregate. And I don't I don't understand, and many of us. Don't understand what the what the gain was from that, and I still scratch my head because we had guys who had just rotated back and had actual combat experience, uh, and they weren't allowed to to bring that experience to bear with uh, with the people that hadn't experienced warfare. And you you would think that would be the the guys you'd want to lean on, but essentially they shunned us uh, and, and uh, shut us down. Yeah, so we're we're utterly bizarre. Where do you think that came from? I, I don't know. And this is the thing: like you, you can you can look at it as maybe jealousy or uh, a number of different things. But I really, I that's one that none of us can really wrap our head around as to why they they took guys with with combat experience and and shelved them essentially.
0: Yeah, because like you said, those are the guys that you would want to pass on the uh, the wisdom. To, uh, yeah, well, going well we,
1: we have training manuals, you know, we have doctrine that uh, we follow, uh, that's been laid out from years and years of experience from the Second World War. And one of the battle drills, just for an example, and I put this in the book, is uh, when you're under artillery attack, when you're being, during training, is as soon as the first round hits the ground or before, if you hear the shells coming in, you start running. And you run as fast as you can out of the kill zone. So you run like a kilometer to get out of the way and what we learned is that's the last thing you do and you know you have to you have to be patient enough to figure out which pattern they're firing so if they're firing a linear pattern you don't run right into the next round or the next consecutive rounds you run in the opposite direction so you have to be patient enough to to figure out what sort of a artillery pattern they're firing and then you run Kilometer out of the kills. Yeah, and,
0: and that's, <laughs> not, that's something you're only gonna you're you're gonna figure it out once you've experienced that, right? I mean it's uh it's not it's not in the doctrine book, so uh,
1: exactly. And that's what we tried to pass on, and and we were told to shut our mouths and go sit down in the corner.
0: Yeah, keep your mouth shut. Wow. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. It's uh. It, it's really a kind of a backwards way of uh. Of uh, of doing things. Mm-hmm. There's a point in. I think writing every book, at least in every military memoir book, where the author is going to come face to face with uh, a moment in time that they might not want to admit on paper uh, because it's not going to make you look good. It's not going to make you look like a hero. And and there's definitely those moments in, in the book Ghost Keepers. And I'm thinking of one moment in particular where and just to give some, some background to the listener, by this time you guys have been you've been shelled, uh, you've been shot at almost on a daily basis, you've seen the atrocities of war. And a Canadian soldier steps on a landmine and and loses his leg to an injury. And your reaction is, I think you say in the book that you have like a very heartless reaction. Did you did you like rumble with including the the bad in the book? Because it would have been really easy for you to to not talk about this, or not, or to omit things that might that people could possibly pass judgment on who weren't there. Did, did you rumble with that much?
1: Uh, not so much. To me, it, it, it's important to have that in there. It, it provides an element of of the truth, you know, or or not just an element of, but the honest truth. Uh, and warfare brings out the ugliest in people as well as the best. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm certainly not uh, excused from from any of that. And for the the negative thoughts and feelings that I had and the stuff that I did that, that uh, you know, was unacceptable behavior, like being mad at this guy for, you know, he shouldn't have been that, he shouldn't have done that, how stupid could he be? And then putting that out there, uh, it, it it allows the reader to connect with with reality. And yeah. I think every one of us has those those moments. And I th- I think it's important that I, you know, I didn't wrestle with that, I and mean, that I just put it in there so yeah. that people could know that I'm I'm genuine. You know, I that's that's the biggest part of this whole reading experience is I want people to know that this is a genuine account from from my perspective. And and yeah. it hurt. You know.
0: Yeah, it it definitely makes it more real. Uh, you're not you're not painting, a, you know, you're not looking at this war uh, through rose-colored glasses. I mean, it's a very that's what I like about the book. It's very it's very upfront. It's honest, and that definitely comes through in the pages, which I think is probably one of the reasons why this book is so successful. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, and me and my brother, we talked about the same thing when we wrote uh, One Soldier. It was very early on in the writing process. We we had a discussion of. Okay, if if we do this, how honest are we going to be? Like, what are, what are we going to leave out? What are we going to put in? And my brother Dylan, he's he's a lot like you, actually. He, reading the book, uh, there's a lot of similarities. But he told me he's like, we gotta we gotta be upfront and just uh, put the good in with the bad. So, you know, that that's uh, a, a conversation that we had, and obviously you you felt you you talked about that uh, probably to your loved ones and figured it out the same way that we did, uh, and it definitely makes for a more honest book.
1: Yeah. I, I, like I say, I didn't rumble with that at all. It was, it was something that just need needs to be done. Yeah. That, uh, you know, the guys that uh, you mentioned heroes and, and I've never ever considered myself to be one. And, and I actually, I'd, it makes me uncomfortable when people say it, but uh, the, the heroes in this book are the, are the 12 guys that uh, have killed themselves since we got home. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I know that, uh, PTSD is uh, something close to your heart. Um, I, I, you know, I was with uh, I was with Captain. We, we did a podcast with Robert Semrau a couple of weeks ago I me and uh, my brother. And he, I don't think he was in, in Bosnia, but he referred to that mission as a PTSD incubator. I know that you're doing a lot of work with uh, on the PTSD front. Do you want to maybe like just with the time we have left, fill in the listeners on on some of the the projects you're working on with that?
1: yeah uh, uh the ptsd incubator is a really uh, interesting comment on that uh the fact that we were not allowed to voice what was going on we weren't allowed to to put our feelings out there to make some changes and that uh when, when we got back that that itself denying us our grief and the ability to make some changes is what actually instilled uh that that incubator mentality Uh, we were uh, unable to get the information out of ourselves so that it could it could it it wouldn't manifest so uh, dr jonathan shea actually writes about it in his book uh, uh, ulysses uh, in vietnam or sorry uh, achilles in vietnam Uh, he talks about the moral injuries that soldiers were provided uh, you know in in that conflict, and then not being able to debrief uh afterwards, and all of that all that energy being left to manifest inside so for us not being able to release that has has caused the the deaths of you know over a dozen guys now there's thirteen actually and uh, out of two hundred and fifty that's a that's a very troubling benchmark yeah uh, so the work that i'm doing with uh, mental health in general uh, i'm on a mental health committee at work i uh, you know try and facilitate proper discussion there with employees and so on i'm the ceo of military minds which is a online peer support organization and you know we we're open 24 hours a day 7 days a week for combat vets their families first responders whoever they can write into us and and we try and help them out with resources and, and just a shoulder to lean on. And then uh, my my project that I started in 2016, which is now going to see its fourth uh, annual this year, is the Rolling Barrage. It's a cross-Canada motorcycle rally that we do for combat vets and first responders. And when I say combat vets, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have been in combat. You could uh, you know have been on any number of peacekeeping missions as well because as we know, peacekeeping missions aren't, <laughs> so.
0: Well, that comes uh, through loud and clear in the book. Yeah. So so I, I, we, we've like barely uh, scratched the surface of this book, but uh, almost out of time here. So I just want to thank you for, for taking the time to, to talk to me today and talk to the listeners. The book is called Ghost Keepers. Highly recommend it. We, we barely got into it, but uh, hopefully, hey, maybe one day we can do this again in more detail.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'd be more than happy to come back on the show and uh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks to the listeners for uh, any support that they give to our Canadian soldiers uh, from any conflict. Thank you.
0: It's a true honor and uh, we'll, we'll catch you later. Okay. Take care now. Cheers, buddy. Bye. And that concludes my interview with Scott Casey. There's so much more that I wanted to get into, but we just didn't have time. Specifically his hunting of enemy snipers in the city of Sarajevo. But if you want to learn more about this so-called peacekeeping mission to Yugoslavia, well, you can listen to episode 3 in this podcast where I do a complete review of the book. Or better yet, support a veteran publishing outfit by ordering this book online. Coming up on the podcast next time, I've got a man by the name of Peter Vronsky, and he's probably the one and only expert on the nearly forgotten Battle of Ridgeway, and we're going to get into the battle and the Fenian invasion of Canada. It's basically an extension of the American Civil War, but fought on Canadian soil, and I'm really looking forward to it. So that's it for tonight. That's all. Until next time, out.